So between now and then, the question becomes, how is the economy going to react? How is real estate going to react? And how is the government going to react? Welcome everyone to episode 22. This is a special Thanksgiving episode here of the Cassandra Properties Podcast. Going to do things a little bit different today. Uh, we're going to run solo. I wanted to give a little bit of a recap of where the market's holding and talk about where I think the market's headed in the next year or two or three, quite honestly, because I think there's a lot of things at play here that not everybody is talking about. So we thought it'd be a good idea if we could give a snapshot of where we're holding and then talk a little bit more about uh, some of those factors that perhaps you're not getting this analysis anywhere else. So for the folks out there on the island in the New York City, pay close attention to what we're about to say here because we think it is going to be of value. So here we go. The, the market, as we had suspected back in maybe two months ago or three months ago, we had Sandy Kruger on and we had talked about what was this recovery going to look like uh, from a real estate perspective on Staten Island. The MLS system during Corona continued to keep the clock ticking. And what I mean by that is when we went on lockdown, they didn't pause the clock so days on market continue to tick off, days that something is pending continue to tick, and it really threw the stats way out of whack. So we had talked about back then that we figured once we got to November, December of this year, we'd have a better sense of what really was happening. Because there was a, a, a backload of deals that were moving toward a closing and then literally got frozen in time one day. And that backload sat for several months as we moved through the lockdown. So when the lockdown opened back up, uh, we had deals that we were able to move into contract through digital means, which was a pretty neat thing for us to do. And those deals were closing with the backloaded deals. So it didn't give really an accurate reflection of where things were and certainly didn't give an accurate reflection of where we thought things were headed. So let's start with a, a, a couple of metrics that we always keep an eye on, and we'll, we'll walk them through. I'm going to do a comparison of 2019 uh, for October and 2020 uh, for October. So this takes us right up until a couple of weeks ago. So the average list price in 2019 for a home on Staten Island was $704,603. For October of 2020, we were up to 732,452. The median list price, October 2019, was 624,000. The median price for 2020 in October was 638,000. That's a 2.24 increase. The average sale price, now this is where you know it really starts to matter, right? 598,041 back in October of 2019. 605573 October 2020. So we're up about one and a quarter percent. And then the median sale price was 55500 in October of 2019, 575 in October of 2020. So we're seeing what we had suspected, which was Staten Island was going to emerge as a very viable option for folks that were looking for a little bit more elbow room as they were relocating out of some of the other boroughs 
and those numbers are holding tight. And I think that there's uh, still a lot of room for appreciation on the residential side. I believe that we are going to continue to see Staten Island emerge as a, a safer or a, a, you know just a different kind of alternative, again, for folks that are looking to stay in New York, um, but are looking for just a little bit more space. Our housing stock here in Staten Island is very different than uh, the other boroughs in many, many, many ways. Um, and for a very long time, Staten Island has just kind of been known as uh, you know, the forgotten borough, and there's a lot of other things that, uh, or, or tags that have been hung on the borough unfairly, uh, quite honestly, that are starting to, to shed off. And, you know, we think that there's some really, really unique opportunities here as we uh, move forward into the next couple of years. So on the commercial side, for the most part, on the brokerage side, things are kind of frozen in time, which, again, when you, you stack it up against the other boroughs, uh, you know, we'll sign on for that any day. Uh, we're seeing significant decreases in uh, the commercial stock, multifamilies, retail offices in the other boroughs. And, and in Staten Island, we haven't seen that. Now, the velocity is, is not where we want it to be, right? Product is not moving nearly as fast as we'd like it to move. But I believe that that's much more a function of the banking industry as it is uh, less a function of the actual market. So if we don't have access to the capital and banks are not geared up to lend for that type of product right now, you're going to see that present itself in the commercial stats. So as we hopefully move to a more flexible place with the commercial lending, you'll see some of those stats change. I think another opportunity here and, and another reason why we'll see some positive stats on the commercial side as we move into the first and second quarter of next year. Now, let me qualify that. When I say positive stats, I mean positive stats in comparison to the other boroughs, right? Uh, certainly, uh, nobody is, is setting uh, records with commercial sales right now and commercial leasing because it's just a, it's a tough time. It's a scary time. But as we head into that first and second quarter, you have a lot of small businesses here on Staten Island that are going through the same exercises that the big corporates are going through. They're looking to skinny up. They're looking to, to save money where they can. And that translates in many cases to uh, purchasing the buildings where the business is located. I do believe that because SBA has some tremendous programs, for those of you that are not familiar with them, please feel free to reach out. There's some great programs out there that are encouraging small businesses to make that purchase and to convert from a renter to equity. Now, that's the, the smaller scale stuff. As we start to look at big picture, there's a lot of things that we have to keep an eye on. The infection rate, as we all know, is increasing in New York and in, in many parts of the country. There's a difference, first of all, between the infection rate that we're getting back from the tests and those actually in infected, right? So only a certain portion of the population is being tested. And from that population sample, we're getting a return. I think at last count, it was somewhere right around 3%. That's kind of been the, the mark where these, these shutdowns start to happen again. And it looks like Staten Island's headed for another shutdown, which is, is getting difficult to, to manage. A lot of businesses are, are hanging on and trying to fight the good fight, but absent another round of stimulus, it's going to be very, very difficult for these small businesses to, to stay afloat. So for the powers that be out there, we beg you to please put politics aside and, and get to the business of getting aid to those of us that need it. Because even the most conservative business owner 
could never have planned for what we're, we're managing today. And with these continued uh, shutdowns starting to roll out, it's really becoming to the point where even more businesses are just hanging it up and calling it a day. Hopefully we get uh, some good news on stimulus and we're able to loosen things back up again as we had done uh, in the first round. But let's let's get back to, even when I'm alone, I, I get my Tweety Birds take over and I go flying away. <clears throat> back to the infection rate. So there's the actual infected versus the infection rate, right? So there's a delta between those two, obviously. There's multiple vaccines that are now in play. There are, I think, two, and then there was, a, I think, a third that was announced that may be in play. And everyone is, is starting to feed off of that good news, thinking, okay, great, there's a vaccine here. You know, it's going to be back to business next year in the first quarter, and things are going to be running again. I want to caution people about that. There's a big difference between us having a, a one or two or three viable options for vaccines and actually getting the vaccines produced in scale and getting them out to the population. So there's a lot of logistics that, that go into to how that's gonna roll out. Who gets it first? When do they get it? How do they get it? Some of these vaccines require uh, extraordinary levels of refrigeration. What facilities are equipped for that type of refrigeration? What type of trucks are equipped for that type of refrigeration? How are we gonna get it from point A to point B? And once we do, is it first-line workers for? Is it the infirmed? Is it the elderly? Who gets these vaccines first? While that's happening, we're going to have an ebb and flow of the virus as it breaks out and it comes back under you know, somewhat of control and it breaks out again, back under control and back and forth. So that's going to take time. Uh, I, I caution uh, the listeners out there, we certainly want to be positive, and, and obviously a vaccine or two vaccines or three vaccines is, is positive news, but I, I want to be careful and make sure that we're not getting ahead of ourselves here. I've done a lot of reading and referenced a, a lot of different materials from all different experts in all different fields that have dealt with pandemics and historians that have taken a look at how economies have, have reacted in the past to try and get a handle on where we think this thing is going to go. A lot of the experts are looking to like 2022 to 2023 before we hit herd immunity levels. And the herd immunity is, is essentially, and in no way am I a virologist or anything of the sorts. So, you know, take this with a grain of salt. I'm just trying to convey what I've absorbed over the last couple of weeks. So essentially, once we get to a level of herd immunity, most experts seem to say that's about 50%, where 50% of the population has been infected, not 50% reported, where 50% has, has actually been infected and we're able to build up some sort of resistance to this thing. Now, when you couple that with the one of the several different vaccines, that's when we can start to really see a light at the end of the tunnel. So if we're talking about 12 months, 18 months, maybe 24 months, that's quite a run between now and this thing actually coming to, I don't think we'll ever be to a, con a conclusion, but it's quite a run before things start to return to normal. And you know, by normal, I mean, we can go out to a ball game again. You know, we can go to a movie theater without any type of, of concern. You know, we can go out and, and have drinks with our friends, go out and have dinners with our families, you know, go to a park and not have to worry. Those types of events, I think, are still a good ways out. So between now and then, the question becomes, how is the economy going to react? 
how is real estate going to react and how is the government going to react as far as getting the stimulus and the aid out to the people that need it. One to two years is an eternity in real estate. There's a lot that can happen between now and then. But I think what we're going to see is those of us who can are going to continue to save and continue to bank money where possible. Those of us who are fortunate enough to still be employed or who are self-employed and, and they're still able to run their business. I think that we're going to see, we get a banking report every quarter where we take a look at this stuff and some of the banks are not performing uh, as well as they'd like and other banks are performing extraordinarily well. Deposits are up significantly. I think at the last report that we took a look at, it was up something like 15 or 20% as far as deposits in the banks overall. So assuming that that trend continues over the next year, year and a half, two years, as we limp through this process of getting back to normal, that means at the end of 2022, beginning of 2023, folks, I think we're in for a ride like none of us have ever seen. I think that the pent-up demand, I think the, the bankroll, the banked savings, and people's desire at that point to return to normal is going to lead to uh, an economy and just an overall explosion, if you will, of activity as people are going to be yearning desperately to get back to normal life. You know, in the short game, there's a lot of different ways that you can try and make money between now and 2023. A debt fund pursuing foreclosures with the mission of keeping people and keeping property owners in the driver's seat, restructuring debt is something that we're pursuing. We are going to go and, and scale this thing on a national level and try and get in the driver's seat with some debt deals. For us, that seems to be the clearest path as the banks are going to be faced with historic foreclosures. There's going to be an opportunity where the banks are going to want to just get that bad debt off their books. So remember, folks, that the banks can lend up to a percentage of, of the amount they have on deposit. Um, and it's, that's, it's not a percentage, it's a multiplier. So, you know, 10x, for example, if a bank has a million dollars in deposits, they can lend up to 10 million. Some of the bigger banks, if they have a million dollars in deposit, they can lend up to 50 million. So what happens is as the loans that are, as they always are, there's a certain percentage of loans that are forecasted and predicted to go bad. That, of course, is going to continue. And then there's the loans that were not in any way anticipating difficulties, um, you know, more of the B paper and the A paper. Those banks now are going to have to get that bad debt off their books now because there's not going to be access to the traditional lending in the volume that I think we've we've all become accustomed to, that means that the banks are going to be looking to get rid of that paper at a discount. There's a major, major opportunity there. We had a guest, Scott Carson, on a couple of weeks ago who's really mastered this, and I applaud him as his model was, and we're adapting that, that model to some extent, uh, focused on not completing foreclosures but trying to restructure deals and to keep people in their homes. I think that there's a, a, a massive opportunity between the lines there. So... I just wanted to come on today. You know, again, it's Thanksgiving this week. It's a very different Thanksgiving than any of us have ever, ever experienced. These are very difficult times, and we thought it would be appropriate if I just ran solo for a few minutes for this week. We're actually making further improvements into the podcast studio to make it even safer than it already is, and we've gone through great lengths 
to that end as well. But we're going to be doing several weeks of remote podcasts just to be super, super, super safe. And then hopefully we could start returning to some level of normalcy sometime in January where we can have people in and, and of course have them at a safe distance. And we've got the purifiers going and we're, you know, we're doing our part here. But I wanted to just talk uh, to the audience directly today and you know, let, it, let the folks out there know that we know it's difficult, but there is there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I think it is a you know it's going to be a little bit of a, a run for us in the next year or so. But there are opportunities out there, and there are ways to get through it. So those are the insights for today. I hope everybody does the best that they can to enjoy the holiday. I hope everybody out there uh, is able to connect with the loved ones to the extent that they can. But above all, I hope everyone out there stays safe.